Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, we proudly bring to you Mormonism Live! Welcome to another episode of Mormonism Live. We are running into a little bit of a technology snafu. For whatever reason this week, when uh, RFM tried to join us here a few minutes before showtime, uh, it ended up having, and I've got my camera crooked. We were just talking with John earlier about uh, that being an issue on, on his end. Um, RFM tried to get in, and for whatever reason, his camera and uh, microphone are not registering at all. But thank goodness we've got a guest tonight, so I don't have to kind of wing this. And so we'll add, uh, we'll add him to the stream right now, John DeLynn. Welcome to Mormonism Live. How are you doing? Good. I think it was the adversary not wanting the three of us to appear together. And I don't blame them because that's a lot of no. that's a lot of heat. So that is, that is a lot of heat, and Satan is hard at work. And so I apologize <laughs> to the listeners. RFM is continuing to try and get into the show. And so we'll see what happens. I do see that he keeps trying, uh, but with little to no luck so far. And uh, so, John, tonight, um, what we wanted to do is I wanted to have you on and kind of talk about the origination kind of story of Mormon stories. And, you know, I've been following you for years. You were a big part of me getting into the podcast world. And you interviewed me before I had ever done a podcast as a sitting bishop who reached out to you and sense that you were beginning to be a little more uh, vocal and a little more uh, poignant to and direct to the issues of Mormonism in your interviews with folks. But I fell in love with, you were the first place, John, where I felt like the Mormonism I was reading behind the scenes outside the curriculum was being discussed. I remember that early Richard Bushman conversation, and he was kind of sick at the time, a lot of coughing, and his voice wasn't that strong. But the, you know, the information he's going over, the issues he's talking about were incredible. And, uh, and then you had an interview with Terrell Givens. And I remember Terrell saying, like, if you just make some allowances, and he offered this kind of really nuanced Mormonism. And it's the first time I, I hear a Mormonism that I can kind of believe in. I got a little fly flying around here. A little uh, a Mormonism that I could finally kind of get behind and go like, okay, maybe Mormonism is true in this other way. And it gave me a chance to kind of hang on. And then I just kept listening to what you were doing. So I'm, I'm just, let me just start off by saying I'm grateful to have you on. You've been a big part of my journey and I'm deeply appreciative of, uh, of all the, all your work, my friend. Oh, well, thank you, Bill. And, uh, I think I've had you on Mormon stories at least three or four times, four and, times uh, at least. Yeah. I, I remember some phone calls with you early on as you were, as you were thinking about starting a podcast and, it's been so fun to see you because I, I mean, you know, there was a, there was a point where it was just me and then, you know, Mormon expression came on, but then John Larson went away and there was a point where you came on and you were just, you really filled a void that kind of was left when I uh, was excommunicated, frankly. And I was so happy to see that void get filled because 
you know, when the church excommunicates you, they do that on purpose. They want to discredit you in the eyes of the members. But it but it was really important that there be this soft landing in this podcast that feels safe for people so that then they can start to feel comfortable learning and then questioning and then figuring out what to do with their lives. And so you stepped right in and, uh, I, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of people come to me every year and say you were a major influence. In fact, I just hired Kara Burrell. She's known mm -hmm. as Nuance Ho on TikTok. And, you know, she was, she was excited to meet me and to talk to RFM, but she literally said to me that when she meets Bill Real, she's going to cry. That's how much your podcast meant to her just a few years ago yeah. when she was going through a faith crisis. And so all the love right back at you. Thanks for carrying that torch. And, um, and then it's just been so fun to see RFM come online and then to see what you guys are doing together. Um, who's going to fill the void now? Who's, who's the person, you know, I kind of had hoped Randall Bowen and uh, was going to kind of fill in as he started a podcast, you know, and I don't, what, what, what's, I don't know what the official name is he's going by now, but, um, I kind of expected him to kind of continue kind of doing that kind of thing. And there's not really anybody out there carrying the faithful podcast. I certainly don't see, uh, Laura Hale's, uh, podcast is doing that and i don't really see any of the others kind of tackling well that. there's kind of me. that tarot gibbons podcast he's got one out of the maxwell institute now and then and then um isn't there like a faith first kind of thing that's that's run by faith matters right isn't that a podcast faith matters yeah i, I that might be the gibbons is that what gibbons podcast is called yeah faith matters yeah yeah, so I mean they they're doing a podcast and uh I don't I don't really see it talked about much, but I'm sure it's got its audience. But but I'll be honest, Bill, like there's always been that joke as um as you know, Bill really is Bill really, they used to say as Bill Real is John Delin was and as John Delin is Bill Real may become. There's got to be people that. who are afraid to get into this space because it's I don't know, like it doesn't turn out so well for the person who gets in the space. <laughs> well, I, I think it's turned out great for both of us. I, I don't have any problem with where my journey's led me, and I don't think you probably have a problem with where it's led no. you. What I mean by that is for someone who starts out believing and wanting to stay in the church, getting into podcasting, talking openly about truth claims, and trying to carve out a progressive space within Mormonism, uh, the writing seems to be on the wall, you know? Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, I disbelieved to some extent long before I outwardly spoke of that, right? It's kind of, you can't really say it. And I think I did an episode, I think I was talking about this last uh, interview um, with RFM last week, where I did an episode called Our Bad Days. And I basically said, look, you guys have bad days. So do I. In my, in my darkest moments, here's what I think about the church. And uh, people were deeply... Uh, appreciative of the vulnerability. And I thought I was going to lose listeners having that conversation. And, and I think it was one of the episodes that cemented a lot of people to seeing some sort of integrity or honesty with what I was doing. Um, I want to jump into, let's jump into a few of these questions. So I, I want to get from you, like, let's go back in time. I know you worked for what uh, was it? Uh, Microsoft? Yeah, I was at Microsoft when I had my faith crisis. Okay, so you're at Microsoft, and when maybe tell us the story where the thought first pops into your head that, hey, I think I'm going to buy a microphone and a camera 
and uh, and I'm going to start interviewing people and having conversations. And obviously, early on, it was probably just a microphone. Yeah, yeah, it was. So 2001, I had my big faith crisis at Microsoft. I I'd spent about three years in what I would call pretty heavy depression in free fall. Uh, I remember there were some internet forums at the time, things like further light and knowledge, or there was one called new order Mormon. Uh, there was the exmormon.org, but all those, all those forums seemed really scary to me. Um, and I, I, there was a website for Sunstone online, but all that they had were, you know, some old audio or video recordings of like the September 6th getting excommunicated and, um, you know, information about the symposium, but there was zero real support for anybody. There was no way to find a community. Um, and I went through several years of real depression and anxiety and, uh, it, it's it's weird because I had a great job at Microsoft. I was making great money. I was working with Steve Ballmer and and you know people that were you know, highest highest levels of the company. But I had always been also searching for a cause or a purpose in life. So uh, by 2004, I, I knew that I just had to resign from Microsoft and figure out what to do. But at the time, iPod still didn't exist, at least to my knowledge. So let alone iPhones, when I left Microsoft in 2004, there were no iPods, or at least I didn't have one. There were no iPhones yet and podcasts didn't exist. So I left Microsoft. I got a, um, I got into a PhD program at Utah State University in Logan, Utah. And the professor that I went to work for, his name was David Wiley. He was a faculty member at Utah State. And one of the cool things about David Wiley is he had a, a partnership with MIT, with the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And he was a real up and coming tech uh, star. And so the, that 2004, I learned about what was called Web 2.0. And I don't know if you remember that term, Bill. Do you remember that term? Um, no. So prior to 2004, the internet was mostly just static web pages. You would go in and you would create these static web pages using something like Dreamweaver and you would just, you know, a website would just be uh, something that you would go to and read from. Web 2.0 was this kind of new wave of the internet where there would be a bi-directional sort of form of communication. So blogging was the first sort of manifestation of that where, you know, you could, you could put out a website, but then other people could comment on the website. So it was kind of, it was kind of bi-directional communication. So blogs really took off by 2004. I remember finding by common consent blog and times and seasons blog and feminist Mormon housewives blog. And that was like a really an intense year because there, there were some really robust blogging conversations. Um, and then wikis came out. Do you remember, you, you know, Wikipedia is now. And one of the cool things about wikis were people from all over the world could contribute to the web page and add information that sort of bi-directional interaction and communication hadn't been possible before then. And so I was learning all about web 2.0 and I learned about these things called podcasts. And by 2004, I'd got my first iPod and I'd started listening to old Sunstone presentations because you, you could go to Sunstone and, and buy CDs or download uh, old Sunstone episodes. So I started listening to those. 
And, um, and then I stumbled on podcasts and believe it or not, mine was not the first Mormon themed podcast. Mike Norton, did you know this? Mike Norton had a podcast called, this is a very subtle, this is a very subtle name for a podcast. It was called the church is not true. <laughs> not very subtle, right? <laughs> not super subtle. And it was Mike and this guy named Hiram who was using a fake name. Yeah. And they would just bash on the church and laugh at it and mock it. And it was entertaining. And I had lost my faith in the church, by the way. I don't, you know, I, I didn't really talk about this openly, but by 2001, I had totally lost my faith that the church was the one true church. I no longer believed that. Four years before Mormon story started, I didn't believe the church was true, but I still thought it was good. And I had been influenced by progressive writers like uh, Lowell Benyon, T. Edgar Lyon, Leonard Arrington, Eugene England. And I had this idea that it didn't have to be true to be good. And I know later you, you turned that a little bit and said, I don't need it to be true. I just need it to be good. And then you found it wasn't good. But at the time I was trying to help make it good. Yeah. Um, and so, so I, uh, I decided, and then the final thing that really influenced me was Kaim Potok. I had read this Jewish author who had these books called The Chosen, The Promise, My Name is Asher Lev, and Davida's Harp. And these books talked about Judaism and how they had carved out a form of Judaism called Reform Judaism, that you didn't have to believe in God, you didn't have to believe in Moses, the founder of the religion, you didn't have to believe the Bible was authentic, you could be gay, you could be an atheist, but you could still be a Jew and you could even be a rabbi. And when I learned about Reform Judaism, my mind exploded and I thought, mm. wow, if what if we could do that within Mormonism? What if it didn't matter if it was true? What if we could make it more good? And then what if we could use progressive thoughts, progressive thinking, liberal, you know, religiously liberal thinking, metaphor, symbolism, and we could infuse through a podcast some of, you know, open discussion of information, informed consent, people could know what they were being a part of, but then we could use myth and progressivism, not in a political sense, but more in a religious sense, to carve out a, a non-literal space within Mormonism. Then everyone could keep their ritual, they could keep their community, they could keep their identity, they could keep their morality, they wouldn't have to blow up their families, and they could have the best of both worlds. They could have their cake and eat it too. So when I started Mormon Stories in 2005, it was literally to to sort of let everyone know the truth about the church and then and then carve out a space of like reform Mormonism within the church. Those yeah. were my main motives when I started Mormon Stories. I love it. When when I started the podcast in I think 2012, I think is when I started. 2012 and it was really easy. I way easier than I thought it would be to get authors and scholars, to get Terrell Givens or Richard Bushman or um oh, I'm just trying to think of, you know, Brad Wilcox was one of the early ones that I did. Um it was really easy to get those folks to agree to do an interview and to come on. Were you surprised by that? I assume you found it relatively easy too. Did you expect it to be so as you started reaching out to these people? Yeah. So, um, one thing I'm seeing a comment from Mark Young, he's saying that the iPhone came out in 2007. So yeah, by 2005, I had an iPod and I had multiple versions of the iPod until the iPhone came out in 2007. So thanks Mark for that clarification. Um, yeah, so 
So that was something that was really fun. I, the way that, cause, cause I'm, I had just moved to Utah. I had never been plugged into, uh, to, um, kind of the liberal Mormon space or the Mormon academic space. I didn't know anything. All I knew is I had read Michael Quinn. I had read Grant Palmer. I had read Fawn Brody. Um, uh, and you know, a lot of those early uh, Simon Southerton, Thomas Murphy, kind of those signature books, authors that were coming out in the early two thousands, hadn't even heard of Dan Vogel yet by that time. But I, but I didn't know any of these people. I had been living outside of the U S outside of Utah and in places like DC and Chicago and Dallas and Seattle. So the key was going to Sunstone in 2004. I went to the Sunstone symposium in 2004 for the first time ever. And it was just like, it was like manna from heaven. I met Armand Moss. I met Levina Fielding Anderson. I met Michael Quinn. I met, um, you know, polygamists. And I met all of my heroes. I met Bonner Ritchie. I met, you know, Greg Prince and Dan Witherspoon and all of these amazing authors that I had been, that had been influencing me for a long time. And so at the time you had to explain what a podcast was. You had to explain what Skype was. You had to tell them to go buy a USB headset. Um, if you didn't have a way to record them in person, but yeah, I was thrilled when Greg Prince agreed to be my first interviewee. I, I, I had to, you know, Greg had to go buy a headset and, and install Skype for the first time. If I, if I'm remembering right. Um, and then, yeah, for those first several years, I, I, I had to teach everybody. This is what Skype is. This is the best headset to buy. Cause I wanted good audio. And I did for many, many years. I did, I did Mormon stories over Skype. Uh, with very few interviews, either with video or with audio. But yeah, I was thrilled when Greg Prince came on. He was my first official interviewee. We talked about his book, David O. McKay and the Rise of Modern Mormonism. And it wasn't very long before I, I convinced, uh, um, you know, Richard Bushman to come on and Grant Palmer. And it was, it really took off from there, but, but, uh, it did take him some convincing, uh, but but generally people like to sell their books and generally people like to talk about their scholarship and they like to talk about themselves. And so, and I worked really hard to try and brand Mormon stories as kind of this middle road. We're going to talk honestly and openly about the history, but we're going to try and do it in a faithful way. And so that was really important to me to, to always try and appear safe and non-threatening and, progressively faithful. And I, I tried to walk that balance all the way through 2015 until I was excommunicated. And some years I did better than other years. <laughs> gotcha. I, which, and by the way, there's this little baby fly that is just keeps landing on my nose. So if people keep seeing me making these weird movements, I'm trying to find them. I'm, I'm not really an animal killer anymore. I'm kind of Buddhist in, in kind of how I approach life, but this guy's got to go. Um, John, in, in terms of those first, let's say two or three years, which which interview to you was maybe the moment, like whether it was the interview or or it was the feedback, but it was the moment where you said like, oh, this thing I'm doing has some staying power. Was there a moment early on? Because I went, I went at least a year thinking like this is this. I'm just this is my chance to just talk and work some things out myself. And a few people get something out of it, then great. 
And then somewhere along the way, I just felt like, oh, this is going well. People are listening. They're enjoying it. I'm providing resources for people to kind of examine Mormonism closer and figure more of this out. When was the moment and, and was it an interview that you had where you're like, oh, this this actually has some staying power? Yeah. So immediately I always I always kind of characterize it as as soon as I bought that first microphone in 2005 and um, recorded my first episode, which was a monologue, and then published it to the Internet, it was as if I had punctured a huge balloon of pain in the sky and the pain came rushing down on my head because they're really, you know, it's, it might be hard for people to imagine, but there was no Julie D'Azevedo Hanks. There was no Natasha Helfer. There was no Facebook. There was no Reddit. There was no, um, Twitter, Mormon stories, no podcast community. There was nothing. If you were suffering in a faith crisis prior to 2004, you had pretty much nowhere to go. And, uh, you were just suffering in silence and you were terrified that you were the only one and that your spouse would leave you and that you'd get excommunicated. So I became this kind of like this, uh, um, this place where people could go to tell their stories and share their pain. And what, what, you know, emails came really quickly comments on the blog, but what surprised me was that people wanted to, um, fly to Logan, you know, fly to Salt Lake City and drive to Logan, Utah, just to have like breakfast with me. I remember a dear friend flew all the way from Brooklyn. He, you know, he's, he's one of my closest friends to this day. He flew from Brooklyn to Salt Lake, drove from Salt Lake to Logan, just have breakfast with me. Another guy drove all the way from Wyoming, a dear friend drove all the way from Wyoming, just to eat with me at a cafe Rio. And I thought, wow, if people are going to drive from Wyoming or fly from Brooklyn, just have breakfast or lunch, just to have someone to talk to, it, it's clear that there's something really significant. But the other thing was, it wasn't just like people were telling me about their faith crisis. They were talking about their marriages, their, you know, what they thought, what they called sexual addictions, their pornography, quote, addictions. They were talking to me about eating disorders and drug addictions and, you know, suicide and, and you know, spouses that were gay or lesbian who had, hadn't even come out to their spouse yet. And they were coming out to me. And I was just like holding all of these. It's one thing to hold the stories that I shared on Mormon stories podcast. It was a total different thing to actually be holding the hundreds and hundreds. And eventually it was thousands and tens of thousands of stories from listeners that would be trying to do phone calls with me, have breakfast, lunch, or dinner. There were times, Bill, and I'm sure you've done this where I had a breakfast and lunch and a dinner with different people multiple days a week. I was always on the phone taking, uh, you know, taking calls from people in pain. Every country, you know, I was working for MIT at the time. I was traveling to Boston, traveling to England, traveling to Houston, no matter where I went, listeners would say, Hey, John, I'll pick you up at the airport. I'll let you stay at my house. If I can just drive around with you and chauffeur you to wherever you're going for business, I'll give you free room and board, pick you up at the airport, feed you just to have the chance to talk with you in the car as I'm taking you to different places. This happened in Beijing, Beijing, London, Boston, everywhere I went, 
because people were just so desperately alone. So it was that bill. It, it wasn't so much the podcast's reception, which was nice, but it was this outpouring of listener need and pain and support that showed me that, that we had, that we had started something that I had started something that was very meaningful to people, very needed and very, very special. And I should say it was another five, I went five years doing Mormon stories podcast where I never really made anything. It was all a labor of love. It was all voluntary. I, there was no open stories foundation. There was no nonprofit five years of supporting people for free, doing the podcast for free or virtually for free. Occasionally people would throw me a, a you know, 20 bucks on PayPal, but I was making pennies per hour and I did it as a labor of love just because there was so much need. All right. I nailed him. The fly is gone. Finally, <laughs> Good for man, you. I felt like Mike Pence there for a minute. People were putting that in the comments. Um, so you mentioned a few there. Was there an interview that stood out as your favorite? Like in those first early years, was there one where you were like, that was, that was golden uh, as you were having those conversations? Yeah. So, um, so some of my favorite early interviews. Yeah. Um, yeah. It was a big deal to get Richard Bushman. Uh, for me, that was a really big deal because I, I knew he had come out with rough stone rolling, rough stone rolling and Mormon stories came out, you know, within a year of each other. And I knew, you know, I knew that getting a former stake patriarch or current stake patriarch, a former stake president and the world's foremost expert on Joseph Smith to talk openly about Joseph Smith and, and the historical problems. I knew that that would be big. Interestingly, this is a story I really haven't told much. When I negotiated the podcast with Richard Bushman, I said, can we cover 10 topics? I said, you know, there's probably 10 really big questions people have about Joseph Smith. And if you could just answer those 10 questions, I think we will have really done um, an important service. And he agreed, he agreed to do, uh, you know, 10 topics. We got through three topics and he quit. He literally quit. We, we got like first vision, peep stones and treasure digging and maybe one other thing. And he's like, John, I got to stop. And uh, the, the way he described it to me privately was he said he felt like he was being stung by bees with my questions because I was, I was really, I, I, I was really working hard to get him to tell the truth in an, in an audible way, because it's one thing to read this big, thick book that frankly is not super interesting. That's kind of hard to get through. But if I could get him to tell the Joseph Smith story in narrative form with emotion, I knew that we would be onto something, but three topics into the 10, he knew that he was probably going to get himself into big trouble if he kept doing that. And so he literally backed out of the podcast and said, I can't, I can't, I can't keep my commitment to you. And he stopped at three. So I was disappointed, but I didn't want to embarrass him and I didn't want to make him mad at me. So I didn't, I didn't tell anyone that story. And I, I probably haven't really told that story to many people to this day. He went on to cover more stuff, right? If I remember right, you guys covered way more ground than three things, but was it only three? Three of them, three of the 10 things I wanted to cover. Cause I wanted to go into polygamy and polyandry and, 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 you know, the novel expositor and, you know, the Masonic Lodge stuff. I wanted to do all that. And, and no, he quit after, 
I, I'm just saying I had 10 topics I wanted to cover. He quit after three. That's all I'm saying. I it was still several hours. I was grateful for those, those hours, but I was disappointed that he didn't keep his word to me. Yeah. I remember him not, you know, not being under the weather and all the coughing and stuff that went on. And it was, let me say it the right way. It was difficult to listen to, but I was, I was essentially, you know, sitting on the floor at the feet of that interview taking in every single sentence that was said because there was this scholar on the inside validating just how messy Mormonism was and that all the stuff I was reading outside of the correlated curriculum was in fact true, at least so far is, as you're pointing out, the areas that he covered. Yeah. Yeah. And, and someone's giving me a hard time saying that I'm calling out his integrity. I don't mean I, I it's a fact that he committed to do 10 and he, and he bailed after three. That's a fact. I'm not saying he's a bad person for doing it. I'm not even saying he's dishonest, but I was disappointed because he didn't, he didn't keep his commitment to me, but you know, I, I, I've, I've backed out of commitments. Like I'm not saying he's a bad person. So anyway, that's just to respond to the person who's saying I'm trying to trash um, Bushman. I'm not, I'm not trying to trash him. I'm really, I really owe him a huge debt of gratitude for coming out Mormon stories. And I'm disappointed that, um, you know, after, after the excommunication, he refused to ever come back on that. That was a real disappointment to me. And frankly, it's, it's fueled some of my frustration with him, both him and Terrell Givens. Um, I'll say, I'll say really quickly, getting Grant Palmer was a huge deal for me. His book, An Insider's View of Mormon Origins, you know, nowadays it's all CES letter, you know, and, and, and Radio Free Mormon and, and Mormonism Live and Mormon Stories. But, but back, back in, in the early 2000s, there was not a more influential person in this discussion than, than Grant Palmer. And I think to this day, his book, An Insider's View of Mormon Origins, is a classic. So, uh, so getting, getting Grant Palmer on and having him talk through all the problems with Joseph Smith, that was a highly, highly influential episode. And I, I, I really recommend everybody go read an insider's view of Mormon origins and go listen to that interview with Grant Palmer. Um, you'll, you know, you'll never be the same after that, uh, for sure. Um, couple other favorites. I really loved, um, Darius Gray, and Margaret Young, Darius is an African American Mormon, and he he was willing to talk about, you know, all the you know um, Elijah Abel and all the black men that were baptized uh, before the church did the the black priesthood ban. Um, it was so cool to interview Paul and Margaret Toscano. You know, Paul was one of the September six, and then Margaret, his wife, was excommunicated shortly after. Levi Peterson was a really favorite interview of mine. He is a novelist that wrote a book called The Backslider. It's like a Jonathan Steinbeck novel with a Mormon setting. And I'm really honored to have been able to interview Levi Peterson. Um, and then Buckley Jepson was my first LGBTQ interview. He was threatened with excommunication because he went up to Canada and got married to his partner. Um, and so his bishop called him in and was going to excommunicate him. I made a big deal about it. And they, and they actually sent his bishop or stake president on a mission and they left Buckley alone. So that was when I first got this idea that Mormon stories could make a, a kind of a news story in the Salt Lake Tribune or in the Associated Press, and that we could actually influence stake presidents and bishops and church policy. So that interview with Buckley Jepson is a is a classic for me. So anyway, those are some yeah. of my early ones. 
I love it. Um, going back to the Grant Palmer interview, I was taking my oldest son to a baseball game. He was in, I don't know, Adam League. He was just a little kid. And as he's out in the field playing, I've got um, some type of earbuds in. And I'm listening to on my MP3 player, I'm listening to the Grant Palmer interview. And I had put off listening to it for a while because I kind of knew, like you kind of know when you're in this space where I want to stay in the church, but I also want to know the information. You kind of pick and choose where you feel your walls are strong enough to kind of hold up to some of the stuff you're going to encounter. And uh, I finally got up the courage to listen to Grant Palmer's interview with you. And uh, in that conversation, I'm listening to it sitting on these metal baseball field benches, the, the little the little bleacher seats. And I'm sitting on these hard seats and I'm listening to this conversation. And I eventually had to get down and kind of walk around. I had to, I had to kind of stop watching my son play baseball because I it was the first moment where inside my head, I said, it's probably not true. Mormonism probably isn't true. What do I do with that? And were you bishop at the time? Uh, I'm sure I was. I'm sure I was. Um, because I, I served for, you know, I had my faith crisis at 32 back in 2012. And uh, I served, uh, you know, four and a half years, almost the full five. And uh, that interview was deeply uh, effective at getting my brain to kind of change course a little bit and start to go like, okay, the church maybe isn't true. What do I do with that? Let's, let's focus on trying to help this thing be good. And as you pointed out, I, I eventually came to the conclusion it couldn't do that either. But some of those, some of those things, you, um, this one's later on. I don't want to jump too far in years, but the uh, Jepson Clark interview where she talks about all the shenanigans behind the scenes uh, to affect the September 6th. And yeah, this, this is a this is a trivia question. What's the most downloaded Mormon Stories episode interview of all time? Is it the Christine Jepson Christine Jepson Clark? Um, yeah, and she was the she was the daughter of Malcolm Jepson, who was Boyd K. Packer's doctor, physician, and Boyd K. Packer's best friend, and a general authority, and Boyd K. Packer's hatchet man who was the general authority that went around and made sure the September 6th were excommunicated. Yeah. So, so we've got the daughter of a general authority who's, you know, Boyd K. Packer was her dad's best friend. She sang in the Mormon Tabernacle Choir, was a super Orthodox Mormon, and then she leaves the church. And she, be, she became our friend. Her, she and her husband, Dave Clark, were dear friends to me and Margie. We were actually in a book club together, mm -hmm. Phil and Debbie Barlow. Phil Barlow was the head of the Leonard Arrington chair of, of Mormon studies at Utah State University at the time. Now he's at the Maxwell Institute. It was Phil Bar Bar Barlow and his wife, me and Margie, and um, and and Christine and her husband, Dave. And Dave was in a stake presidency when he lost his faith. But yeah, Christine was just, she just was such a great storyteller. And that's the most listened to Mormon stories episode of all time. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that was a fantastic one. The whole bit with Abraham Gileadi and all the stuff that Avram, went on. Yeah, Avram Gileadi, yeah. And you and you look at you look at all those folks and what they were writing and what they were excommunicated for and they would be they would be perfectly tolerated in today's oh. climate. Yeah, Maxine Hanks is like, "Oh, I think I think maybe we ought to talk about women and their roles in history and you know, did you know that there was a time when 
when women were able to give blessings, excommunicated. You know, Avram Gileadi is like, let's talk about the second coming, excommunicated. You know, it was, it was pretty harsh. Yeah. 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 yeah yesterday's ex yesterday's apostates are today's apologists basically <laughs> yeah no terrell gibbons would have been one of the september 6 if he if he was doing what he did back then and today you know folks who were back then excommunicated would have been perfectly fine to hold a temple recommend um your well, thoughts too just uh like when you first started mormon stories and what was the first year you you began was it 2000 2005 2005 yeah when you first started let's say that first year did you have any long term goal with it did you did you expect it to to last did you have some hopes that this thing could really um be fruitful and 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 kind of have some again some staying power what were your thoughts kind of as you jumped into that was this let me just do this for 6 months and see what happens i mean the only thing i knew for sure was that I would eventually be excommunicated. And I, I haven't really, I haven't, I don't know that I've said that as directly and candidly, but when I, but, but that, that's something that I, I, you know, and that was only because I had been at BYU in 1993 when the September 6th were excommunicated. And then I saw for the next 10 years, how that sent this chill throughout Mormon discourse. And um, so I just, I knew that what I was doing was dangerous and I knew about Fawn Brody and I knew about, you know, the silencing of Eugene England and and T. T. Edgar Lyon and Lowell Benyon and, um, but but no, there was no way when you just, you know, Bill, I, I'm sure you can remember this time, for like probably the first six or seven years, people people didn't know what a podcast was. They didn't have an iPod, they didn't know how to listen to a podcast, and they they didn't know what podcasts were. So even five to seven years into the podcast, you still had a majority of people having never heard of podcasts. I don't know if you remember that. Podcasts are a relatively recent phenomenon. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I would I would drag uh, MP3 files from my computer. I would download a <laughs> hundred at a time and I would drag them all over to my MP3 player. And then I would take this MP3 player. I worked for a floor covering store and a lot of my time was spent on the road driving to and from homes to measure. And sometimes I would uh, measure brand new houses or I would sometimes I'd even get lucky and get to ride the ferry over to the islands and it'd be a four or five hour task to go over and measure a house on an island that was empty, get back on the ferry, come back into Port Clinton, Ohio. And it would give me, I remember I was on uh, Kelly's Island when I listened to your Terrell Givens interview. And um, I just, I, I was voraciously listening. I started off with all the BYU talks. I think those went up pretty early. And, and then it was, it was uh, your work. And suddenly I'm taking maybe, you know, general conference talks that were happening and being put into MP3 formats and just putting them on a generic MP3 player and just listening for multiple hours a day. Whenever I had a free moment, there was never music in the car. It was John DeLynn and some other pieces of Mormonism uh, playing over the speakers. Yeah. Well, that's, you know, that, that means a lot. I, I, whenever someone like you or Jeremy or RFM or whoever, when they, when they tell me that I was in a, you know, a useful part of their journey, it means a lot because that, that was the goal. The goal was to just help as many people as possible. And so that means a lot, Bill, to, to know that, that I was helpful to you and, and no, you, there's no way of knowing that it would eventually become a nonprofit and that it eventually it would become a full-time job and a livelihood for me. If you, I mean, 
who would have ever thought that you could support a, a full-time salary on a podcast? And in fact, it's still super hard. I think you're making good progress towards that, but, but it, it's, it's kind of, it's kind of rare. And, uh, it's, it's, it's not so rare outside of Mormonism kind of with podcasts that have a larger audience, but because this audience is so niche, I, I would have never guessed that it would be able to become a full-time job or become sustainable. Um, and yeah. that was a huge leap of faith for me to even try and go in that direction, honestly, because I was giving up my careers in tech. I mean, I literally resigned at Microsoft and MIT to do this work. Um, but also I, I guess I never thought it would become as influential as it was, you know, eventually getting several stories in the New York times. I was on good morning America. I've been on NPR, like, like it's, and the, it's reach. Um, it's really, it's really listened to all over the world and not just by Mormons, but by ex Catholics and Jehovah's witnesses and Scientologists. And then when you think about all the Facebook groups that have popped up and all, Reddit and all the ways, all the things that have come from the kind of podcast movement, including year of polygamy and, and other podcasts, I don't think there's really any way to have predicted this. And frankly, I would have never thought that blogs would have disappeared. But like, you know, when I started the podcast, Times and Seasons by Common Consent, Feminist Mormon Housewives, Millennial Star, that was where Mormon discourse was happening. And it was really, really unexpected to see the, you know, those, whoever talks about those blogs anymore. I mean, I'm sure they're still blogging at by Common Consent or Times and Seasons. I never see, I almost never see them referenced. And it, it seems like somehow in Mormon discourse, podcasts just eclipsed, blo eclipsed blogs. Do you remember blogs? Yeah, I yeah, I remember blogs. Um, when was the last time was, you went to a Mormon themed blog? <laughs> Book of Mormon Answer Man was one that I spent a lot of time on when I was uh, in at Bowling Green State University for college. Um, I want to ask a few of uh, RFM's questions with him not being here, but I want to finish. I want to finish with one of mine at the end. But let's talk about a couple of things he wanted to know about. You did this Stay LDS project, which I thought was massive, huge, covered so much ground. And as you're pointing out, you stopped believing before this all started. And yet you worked, if I can be frank, you worked your ass off to make a safe space for people to have nuance and still be in the church. Talk for a moment about the Stay LDS project that you started, um, because I don't, I don't know if it's still out there. I think it probably is, but I don't know if it's still out there. But that to me was also huge early on giving me some space to kind of finagle believing when I knew most of it didn't add up, at least on the truth claims issues. Yeah. What happened was this was around, okay. So 2004, I moved to Logan. Uh, I start the podcast in 2005 and immediately in 2004, they call me as an elders quorum instructor. And so for several years, I'm teaching these progressive elders quorum lessons I'm a lesson on blacks in the priesthood, a lesson on polygamy, a lesson on, you know, the peepstone and a third of the elders quorum loves it. A third of the quorum hates it. And a third of the quorum is asleep. And eventually people started telling on me to the Bishop and complaining. And I realized that I was really upsetting the believers in the quorum because they didn't come to church to have their faith questioned or 
matured or grown, they came to have their faith reinforced. And so, and then, and then when the bishop started investigating me, we had an investigation where the bishop said, literally, I'm investigating you for your membership. That happened in the, I want to say 2006, you know, 2006, 2007 timeframe. It all just became too much. And so Margie and I kind of went inactive for a year, let's just say in that 2006 timeframe. And the conditioning was so profound for me that after a year, I, I just, every Sunday I felt like, are my kids going to get the instruction that they need? Are my kids going to become immoral kids without going to church? Oh, I, I tried taking my garments off. I felt cold. I felt a chill. And, and I had this conditioning, like, am I going to cheat on my wife? If I take my garments off, am I not going to be protected? And I just, you know, we started trying to like go on hikes and trying to, um, you know, just do like Eckhart Tolle kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. But by the end, by 2007, I just felt empty. I felt, I felt like I was missing the spirituality in the community. And part of this was because I was doing it in Logan. And part of it was because we didn't have the things that we have now that really make it a lot easier to leave the church. And so I was, you know, after a year of being out of the church, I felt dark, I felt afraid, I felt sad, and I felt like I was doing my family a huge disservice. So after convincing Margie and the kids to stop going to church, I decided I was going to come back and I was going to carve a way for others to stay as well. And so I started stayLDS.com around 2007, and I wrote this like 80-page document called How to Stay in the Church After a Crisis of your faith. And it gave you instructions on how to answer the temple recommend questions in a nuanced way, how to look, to look at tithing in a nuanced way where you would pay, you know, 10, you know, you could pay 10%, but to a cause you believed in, give some to the church, but give some to other causes, but you're still yeah. paying 10%. You just define tithing more broadly. And I, I introduced this idea of being a buffet Mormon very explicitly saying you don't have to believe at all. Nobody believes at all. You can take the stuff you like and leave the stuff you don't. And then I gave all these tips about managing your capital at church and not offending people and, and being careful who you say what to. And yeah, it was basically just this manual. And I'll just tell you that that, that essay was downloaded tens of thousands of times and it was used by, by a lot, a lot of people. And there we have RFM. It's almost like, it's almost like the the Holy Ghost descending like a dove. It's RFM descending. Yeah, except I'm coming up from beneath, baby. You look great. Turn your phone ninety degrees, RFM, and then you can be uh, you can have a wide shot. Why don't you come here and make me? Why don't you come over okay. here and make me? <laughs> Jeez, uh, I just finally make it into the show, and already I'm getting bossed around. RFM, we're going to solve this problem. Uh, we, I, I think we're going to we're going to get some technology sent your way tonight. I'm going to I'm going to order a couple of things on Amazon that will make I hope this easier. Do, how did you get? What did you end up doing? What did you end up getting to work? Uh, I called Jonathan Streeter. Okay, does he have any idea what the real issue is? Because obviously you're using your phone at this point. Nobody helped me do that because the speaker on my phone doesn't work. So he's, I'm plugged in now with my headphone into that. And so I'm in the show 
And I don't mean to be interrupting the flow because I'm sure it's just going wonderfully. No, I, I got a bunch of my questions out already. I've got one more I want to ask uh, in regards to another group of people that he had some interactions with. But okay. I already asked about the Stay well, LDS project. What other things would you like to ask uh, John tonight about? Uh, Mormon stories besides stay LDS because we just touched on that. Well, let me well, let me just say one thing, Bill. Can I can I just finish one please. thing about stay LDS? Yeah. So I I released that essay, How to Stay in the Church. It helps tens of thousands of people. I was super excited about it. I saw that it was helping a lot of people, and so the, for that first year or two of having that essay out and having stay LDS up, I thought, wow, I think we're really on to something. But then within a year, I started seeing people um, who were helped by the StaleDS website slowly start reporting to me that they weren't able to make it work. Mm. It would be like, oh, I, I got too depressed, or oh, I got too anxious at church, or oh, I started having panic attacks while I was at church, or oh, I felt really dishonest, nuancing the temple recommend questions. Um, I felt like I knew that that what I was telling the bishop in those temple recommend interview questions, that, that I was portraying myself in a way where if the bishop really knew what I thought and felt, that, that uh, he wouldn't allow me to go into the temple. And long story short, the Staldius way for so many people was discovered to be untenable. And then at one point I just realized that, that there would be believing spouses or bishops even that would recommend the stale DS path to their parishioners or to their spouses. And they would pressure them and say, look, John DeLynn can make it work. Lots of other people make it work. You should be able to make it work. And once I realized that it was unhealthy for a lot of people to stay active in the church when they no longer believed, and when it was, when it was doing them harm, to have allowed them to be pressured into taking a more nuanced approach. I actually had, uh, I actually added a disclaimer to the top of that document that said, John, De you know, and this guy named Brian Johnston took over the website. He took over the essay, but I, I made him keep a little disclaimer at the top, which is John DeLynn has found that, that this path is not tenable for many, if not most of the people who try it. And at that point, I've allowed the, the website to stay up there because I find that it, it has been a soft landing to give people kind of this middle way so that they can, they can transition slowly into a place that works out better for them. We need soft landings, um, but ultimately it was unsustainable and unethical. And so that's why I haven't really promoted StaleDS um, since then. So sorry, I just, I wanted yeah, to finish no, telling good. that part of the story. Appreciate that. Yeah. RFM, give us, uh, give us a few questions on your end, my friend. I put on some glasses so I could see better. I'm doing my, my Bill Real impression. <laughs> All right. Wait, let me join you guys. I'm going to join you guys. Oh, all right. Oh my gosh. We're so three, sets three blind mice, three blind mice, three intelligent and handsome young men. Um, yeah. So I heard you. When I was struggling uh, in vain to try and get on by my computer, but I had you on and I heard you talking about your heroes, your erstwhile heroes, I might add, Mr. DeLynn, Dr. DeLynn, excuse me, of T. Edgar Lyon, Lowell Binion, Leonard Arrington, and Eugene England, because I remembered I've been a longtime listener to your show, not from the very beginning, but pretty close. 
And I remembered you uh, rhapsodized in one of your relatively early podcasts about how these individuals were your heroes. And uh, I think, well, let me ask, let me ask you the question, okay? Uh, why were they your heroes? How long ago was that podcast? And why were those four individuals your heroes at the time? I've probably mentioned them a lot over the years. And so I don't know which episode you're talking about. It was but, an early one, but go uh, ahead. Probably, it was probably 2006 or 2007. Um, yeah. So Lowell Benyon, if you go back and read Lowell Benyon's biography, the guy's a genius. The guy was the guy, you know, the guy would say things like in his book, I have no interest in believing in any God who, who does anything unkind or anything unchristlike. And so he had a, he had a deep philosophical and scholarly background. Um, and he was, he was modeling buffet Mormonism before any of us had ever thought about it. He was modeling, um, he was a, he was an educator at the university of Utah in the Institute program there. Um, and he was just a pillar for, uh, more progressive advanced thinking kind of, kind of like, uh, Richard Rohr is to Catholics. Lowell Benyon kind of was to Mormons, to the Mormons who were paying attention. T. Edgar Lyon was an unflinchingly honest historian, at least contextually for his day. And then Eugene England, he was, a, you know, he was a progressive voice fighting for honesty in, in Mormon history and scholarship, but also, um, uh, you know, fighting for this middle way where, where intellectuals and scholars could be embraced. And that's what I wanted. Uh, RFM. I wanted um, intellectuals to be able to stay in the church. I wanted the church to become robust enough for there to be like Judaism, robust, healthy discourse within the church. And, and it was T. Edgar Lyon, Lowell Benyon, Leonard Arrington, and, um, and uh, Those guys. Eugene England that were carving out that space decades before I was trying to carve out that space. Okay. Got it. Now, my follow-up is, are they your heroes still? I mean, I respect them all. Like I didn't mention Leonard Arrington. Those 10 years that Leonard Arrington introduced, starting in 72, ending in 82, kind of those Camelot years of Mormon church history, we wouldn't have Michael Quinn probably without that. We wouldn't have so much of the history that we have now came out of, you know, Richard Bushman's book, Joseph Smith and the Beginnings of Early Mormonism, was commissioned by um, Leonard Arrington as part of what I think was his sesquicentennial book series. You and I talked about this recently at yeah. RFM. Like, and, and then and then it was, it, was, uh, it was those Leonard Arrington years that helped lead to Sunstone, which then helped lead to all of us. So I always, people are very generous to compliment you guys or me. I like to say we stand on the shoulders of giants. We really do. There would be no Grant Palmer. There would be no um, Simon Southerton, Thomas Murphy, uh, even Rough Stone Rolling, I don't think, without those Leonard Arrington years um, and without those dialogue years. And, and by the way, who was the first editor of dialogue? Eugene England. Di you know, think about how much scholarship has come from dialogue. Well, it was Eugene England that started dialogue along with Dallin H. Oaks. And so, yeah, there would be none of us without them, in my opinion. And that's why I do have respect for them. But no, they're no longer heroes like my top heroes. They've, 
they've uh, they've gone down several notches in my list of heroes. Why have they gone down? Um, just because, uh, you know, I you know the church. I think I was holding them up as up up as heroes and as role models for a future that I wanted to see, which is that the church would become a big tent big enough and confident enough and strong enough to support open and honest discourse and even disagreement within the tent. And that when, when the church excommunicated Denver snuffer and then Kate Kelly, and then me, and then Bill and Sam young and, and Lee and Cody young, and all the people that the church has been excommunicating now, you know, they're excommunicating same sex married couples, the church kind of, the church kind of uh, made its decision that it was not going to be a place of open and honest history and open and honest discourse and an organization mature enough um, to, to sustain criticism, even respectful, um, faithful criticism. And so once that dream died for me, then those heroes uh, descended in the ranks of, of, uh, of kind of who I look to for, for, Mm. Uh, inspiration. I no longer, I, I don't think the Eugene England, I think if Eugene England uh, were alive today, he'd be excommunicated. I think if Leonard Arrington were alive today, he'd be excommunicated. And, and I th- so I, I think the church has killed my dreams in that regard. And so those heroes kind of dropped down several notches as a result, if that makes sense. I think if I were alive today, I'd be excommunicated. Why haven't you been excommunicated, RFM? I think the world wants to know. Well, I don't know. You're asking the wrong person. Have you Mormon Church? I know you're listening. Why have you not excommunicated Radio Free Mormon? Because I'm keeping the dream alive, baby. (laughs) Hey, some people are spreading a rumor, RFM, that you have been washed and anointed, uh, and had your calling and election made, and had your calling and election made sure. I'm talking about in a Mormon temple, not that one time at the Holiday Inn. So maybe (laughs) if you so. I got washed and anointed so many times my first time through the temple back in November of 1979. I was almost waterlogged. The second anointing, though, is what I'm pointing to. Did you? Oh, the second one. Okay. The second, the second one. one. Well, I cannot confirm or deny whether I have received the second anointing. And that's all I can say about that. <laughs> but, but we have been instructed not to share our most spiritual experiences with the world. Yeah, but it's just, it's just you, me, and John DeLynn. Could you just tell us? Like, is I that can't. what happened? I cannot say I have not because for one reason, and I cannot say I have for another reason. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> no, there, I doubt that there's any truth to that rumor. You, yeah. Doubt, doubt your doubts. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it's so great to finally be on the show with you guys. Yeah. Hey, RFM. Um, Life is always better with RFM. So it is. It is. Things are a little more funny. I don't. I don't tend to be more ch- as humorous as he is, and so I appreciate his humor too. Did you already? How is it, Bill? How is it? How is it that RFM is smarter than us and funnier than us? That's too much talent. In it's almost like Rush Limbaugh. Too much talent for one individual. Talent yeah, on loan from God. Talent baby. on loan from God. I'm doing this podcast with one hand tied behind my back just to make it fair. <laughs> he reads a lot, John. You and I read Mormonism. Uh, RFM has read Shakespeare and all the classical literature. He's hardly he's all, hardly all. I got to tell you. And I think he's got a photographic memory too, because he remembers all these quotes and 
poems and uh, movies and he, just there's so much information stored in his brain that I get a headache just kind of thinking about it. Well, you're Bill, like, you're no I, slouch. You're you're super slouch. And Logan, the commenter, is saying that, that that RFM is also more handsome. So he's not just more intelligent and and more funny. He's also more handsome. So he's got the trifecta. Logan should not be slamming the both of you that way. And by the way, when you're complimenting me about my intelligence, remember, you're talking to the guy who can't get on the show on his freaking computer. <laughs> all right. Touche. Okay, hey, I so want to thank all the people mind. that are donating to radio, uh, to Mormonism live. There's, I've seen at least 10 or 15 donations. Keep those donations coming. These guys that, deserve your support. I don't want to step on what you're saying. That's right <laughs> before I got on the show. I should leave and let those donations start again. No, they're coming more frequently now. Thank so you, everybody. We're, we're just over the hour mark, RFM. Um, I want like only 10 minutes to me. <laughs> so we should go another hour to get you caught up. But Time is flying. I, I do want to give you a moment. While we've got John on, if there's other things that are on your list that you think are crucial to ask, I'd, I'd welcome that. But I don't want to go too much longer. I don't want to take up his whole evening. And to be honest, I've got something to do about 8.20. So I want to get out of here, too. So um, What do you have what going you on at 8.20? I'm going to go out with a friend and get some ice cream. How fun. Really? Is your friend Joe Biden? My friend is not Joe Biden, although with the fly that was hanging on my face all night, I certainly uh, looked like uh, somebody in the previous administration. That was Vincent Price. <laughs> Vincent Price? Help me. Help me. <laughs> I finally got him, but another one's flying around, so we may do more of this. Is anybody out there getting this stuff? <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> no, Bill Real is not getting it. John? Are you I, of course this? I know Help Me. That's from The Fly, the movie. And who, who starred in that? You said Vincent Price. Yes, he was not the guy who turned into The Fly, but... But also, didn't Jeff Goldblum pl play the fly in a, in a more recent version? Well, yeah. If you call 1980, what, six or eight or whatever it was, it was the 1980s. Yeah. Yes, he was in that. <laughs> anyway, um, so uh, you're going to go out for ice cream. And what are you doing later tonight, John DeLynn? <laughs> no, I'm I'll, I'll, I can stay as long as you guys need me. I, I can stay for as long as you want. Okay, thank you. Okay, so now, do, are you trying to segue into opening this up for phone calls? Well, I want to ask him about Fair Mormon, but I want to give you a chance if you had something else on your list that you that you really kind of wanted to dig into to, to ask that. Yeah, um, I just wanted to finally tie this off by asking, who are your who are your heroes today, other than me? <laughs> I know that's so, that makes it hard. Um, Present company excluded. Okay. okay. Um, so Harriet Tubman, uh, I, I think of, you know, the work that Harriet Tubman did on the Underground Railroad, helping people escape from slavery. Metaphorically, I, I think of, I've always thought of her as being influential <laughs> in the work that I do. It's not that I'm, it's not that I see Mormonism as slavery, but I think Mormonism without informed consent is unethical and is a form of mental slavery. Uh, if somebody has, um, if somebody has all the information and they decide that they want to stay a member of the church, that's great, but it's deeply unethical for people to be raised in the church, um, or to convert to the church without all the information. And it's usually information that can help 
liberate people from the from the chains of a lack of informed consent. So Harriet Tubman is a huge inspiration for me. Um, Fred Rogers is a huge inspiration for me. Just Mr. Rogers, just uh, his his example of kindness and diplomacy is really inspiring. Jim Henson is a creative um, inspiration for me. To believe it or not, Sir Thomas More, uh, the you know you you probably remember the movie A Man for All Seasons. Uh, Sir Thomas More was the advisor to Henry VIII, who who would not um, sacrifice his integrity, and Henry VIII ended up having him executed because he would not, um, you know, he would not abandon his integrity. Sir Thomas More is a hero. To be honest, uh, this may not be popular for some. Oprah Winfrey is a hero of mine. Just the way that she's been able to model having a massive reach through multimedia. Are there people out there? What's that, RFM? I would say you're kind I, of you freezing up. Be mad about Oprah Winfrey? I don't know. Am I? Um, but you guys I, but have been I, blacking out. I, I love Oprah. Um, and so Oprah, Oprah is definitely uh, one of my heroes. So those are, those are some of my heroes. Um, I, you know, I really so love Carl Dr. Sagan. Dr. Carl Sagan is a huge Dr. hero. Lynn. Yes. Okay, Doctor Lynn. Okay. I'm, I'm noticing a, a trend here that earlier all of your heroes were members of the church and now none of your heroes are members of the church. Yeah, I, um, what's up it, with that? It is, it, I have a, you know, I, there, I, there are plenty of really good people in the church. There are plenty of really intelligent people in the church. There are plenty of kind hearted, wise people in the church several family members of mine included. Um, I do, uh, I do place a very high value on science and on truth and on integrity and on evidence. You know, when I mentioned Carl Sagan as a hero, it's because he's been a champion of, of science and of evidence for so long. And, um, and, and so, yeah, it's really hard for me. Uh, if somebody still retains a literalistic belief in Mormon truth claims, it's probably hard for me to see them as a hero these days on a macro sense, because it means that they have a worldview that I really don't respect anymore. I, I honestly don't think, I, I don't think it's a respectable position to view the Book of Mormon as a like, like years ago, I started saying this and people would get so furious. I don't think there, I don't think there's any credible way to see the book of Mormon as a historical document or the book of Abraham, or, you know, the, 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 the Mormon temple ceremony or, or just, just Mormon church truth claims. I don't, I don't see there's any way to see Joseph Smith as anything other than a sexual predator. And if someone tells me Joseph Smith wasn't a sexual predator, I have a hard time taking them seriously. If somebody tells me the Book of Mormon is a work of his of of history, I have a hard time taking them seriously. So it's not that I don't believe that there are good people who are Mormons, brilliant, smarter than me, kinder than me, gooder than me. You know, yes. And as a hero of mine, it's kind of a non-starter. Um, uh, unless we kind of niche nicheify the hero segment to like, you know, Patrick Mason is a kind, wise person. 
So do I love and respect him? Yes. But can I see him as a hero? No, because, because he still believes the Book of Mormon is historical. He still believes in golden plates. And to me, that's analogous to believing that Santa Claus is real. And there's way more evidence that, that the Mormon church is not true, that the Book of Mormon is a work of historical fiction, that Joseph Smith was a fraud. There's more evidence about that than that Santa is a fraud. And so it's just hard for me to respect as a hero, someone who, who believes those things. I know that's going to, this will be a soundbite that the apologists use to, to really come after me, but I'm just being honest in answering your question. I'll just tell you, John, I, I wouldn't name my heroes inside Mormonism anymore either. Um, Sam Harris, Richard Rohr, Eckhart Tolle, Michael Singer, um, Nadia Boltz Weber. Uh, I mean, I could just go on and on too. And, and my list is no longer probably filled with a single person inside Mormonism. Yeah. 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 So I, that, I don't know if that answers your question, RFM, but. I could follow it up, but maybe not fruitfully because a follow-up question would be, well, wasn't Thomas more Catholic? Yeah, sure. So he probably has um, some religious beliefs that you wouldn't no, agree no, with. No, you make a good point. You make a good point, RFM. Maybe, maybe we can cut him some slack because he was living what 14th century. What century was, was he pre, was he pre Copernicus? Was he pre Galileo? I would guess so. Right. Well, if it's uh, Henry the eighth, I'm going to guess it is the 17th century. Okay. All right. Well, um, is that true? No, it would be, I think it would be right before it'd be at the end of the 16th century. Yeah, I think you're right. Because yeah, he was, so he I'm, was married, I'm not getting my history totally solid. No, no, no. Henry VIII was 1400s to 1500s. Um, I meant he was Elizabeth's dad and she was queen in 1600. Yeah, so Henry VIII died in 1547. When did, when, when was, uh, when, when was um, the Galileo, when was Galileo imprisoned? I don't know because I'm using my hands to hold this uh, this camera in place, so I can't be googling right now. So Galileo was imprisoned in 1642. He died in 1642. Yeah, so I'm gonna cut I'm gonna cut Sir Thomas More some slack. He didn't have Charles Darwin. He didn't have Galileo. He didn't have um, you know so many of the Enlightenment thinkers that have brought us to where we are. So I'm cutting I'm cutting Sir Thomas More some slack. And it's not that I'm anti-religious. I think there could be plenty, you know, you, you mentioned Richard Rohr, Richard Rohr, Bill Real. I have huge respect for Richard Rohr and he's a Catholic priest even, but he is a non-literal. I don't think he thinks the much of the Bible's historical. No. And I certainly don't think he thinks the Book of Mormon's historical or that Joseph Smith, you know, was a prophet of God. You know, and, what I'm and saying? he's a much bigger model to me of human development than any of his religious rhetoric. I don't really care about that. But what he does is he suggests that there's a better way to be human, and he and he speaks at lengths on that, and that's why he's on my list. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, I love your questions, RFM. I'll take them all day. Well, thank you. Stop right now, and so we can let some of the audience members call in because I bet they're lining up. Yeah, let's let me do this, uh, RFM. Let me get one more question in on on Fair Mormon because I did advertise to the listeners that we talk about that, and then we'll open up the phone lines. John, I I remember your early interview with John Lynch, and he refers in that conversation. By the way, he refers to 
Terrell Givens as a female. He doesn't even know who Givens is at the moment. I kind of got a little chuckle from. And uh, I'm curious, what was uh, I, I Bill, did? I Bill, hang tell. on. That doesn't. That, Bill, Bill, that yeah. doesn't necessarily mean he didn't know Terrell Givens. I don't. I'm. I don't. I'm okay. I'm going to move on. All right. So <laughs> he's a um, little. Terrell's a little metrosexual there. He maybe. I don't. Yeah. Well, I'm. I'm going to just not comment. Um, in those early conversations, I couldn't tell what your relationship with Fair was. And having been on Fair Mormon's volunteer list, helping them behind the scenes win the podcast award in 2013, by the way, um, I couldn't tell even from their conversation whether you had been part of them or what your affiliation or interactions with them were. Would you mind just quickly giving us kind of a run through of those early days and what your relationship with Fair was? Yeah. So, um, so my part of my history with Fair goes way, way, way back. So I was a political science major at BYU, and Lou Midgley was one of my professors. And so I I knew Lou Midgley back in the in the early nineties. And, um, and I knew about Daniel Peterson back then and farms. So when I, when I got into kind of the podcasting realm, I joined the fair Mormon, you know, email list. And, you know, before there were the, these discussion boards, they had, like you said, a volunteer list where you could join it and, uh, and, you know, engage in discussions, answer questions, and just keep abreast of apologetics. So I joined that. I would get their emails. I would comment. I would get into discussions. <clears throat> I still consider myself kind of a progressive believer at that point. Um, and so that's how I got John Lynch to come on Mormon Stories podcast very, very early on. I also attended a fair Mormon conference. I met Lou Midgley there and I saw Daniel Peterson there. And I wanted to kind of be those guys' friend and to collaborate with them. And it, frankly, I wanted to help encourage them to do better apologetics, to stop with the ad hominem, and to stop with the really lame uh, answers and stuff. What put me on the bad side of FAIR very early on was interviewing Grant Palmer. When I interviewed Grant Palmer, I remember Daniel Peterson writing somewhere that I was dead to him, that if I was willing to even, even give him audience that that made me persona non grata um with fair and i don't remember if they kicked me off i think if i'm remembering right they kicked me out of their email group um possibly for interviewing grant palmer now i may be totally wrong about that we're talking about i mean we're talking about 16 years ago 15 you know so my memory's really fuzzy but you know from that point on i think i I, I think I started taking a more hostile approach towards Fair Mormon because I saw how they slandered Simon Southerton, calling him an adulterer when he was, you know, just trying to smear his name. I saw what they did to um, Von Brody, you know, back before they were fair, you know, the Maxwell Institute, Hugh Nibley. I saw what they did to Brett Metcalf, and I just felt like they were thugs. I felt like Mormon apologists were thugs. And I just said, they're bullies and somebody's got to stand up to a bully because that's the only way to get a bully to shut up. And so I've been, I've been standing up to them as bullies or trying to ever since. And, um, 
and I'm I'm proud I'm proud to have helped get Dan Peterson Daniel Peterson removed from the Maxwell Institute. I'm I'm proud to have uh, helped get um, several videos taken down from Fair Mormon's YouTube page recently, and I'm I'm proud uh, for having stood up to what I think has been just a lot of bully. And by the way, Fair Mormon is still trying to bully me. They're still trying to smear me. There's, you know, there are people on your chat right now that are trying to make up lies and smears. Uh, and that's just part of the business. That's what fair Mormon does. That's what Mormon apologists do. And it's, you guys know, it's just part of the business. And, uh, I'm, I'm, I'll take, I'll take whatever slings they want to throw at me arrows. Um, because I'm, I'm proud of what we do. So. That's my that's my little rant on Fair Mormon. And by the way, Daniel Peterson has been on Mormon Stories podcast. It was just Dan Witherspoon that interviewed him. He wouldn't let me interview him, but Dan Witherspoon interviewed Daniel Peterson, and he said almost nothing that was interesting. It is the least, probably the well, least referenced interview I've ever done. I don't think I've ever literally had anybody say to me, "Wow, that interview that you did with Daniel Peterson was really interesting." Nobody's ever mentioned it. It's it's about, that forgettable. What about it's literally Professor that irrelevant and forgettable. Well, what about his commitment to the idea and the uh, functionality of divining rods? <laughs> Water witching. He talked about that, didn't he? Oh, yeah. yeah. He's got an uncle who still I does remember. water witching or something. Yeah. Yeah. He swears up and All down right. it works because he's seen it. So he knows that there is something that happens there. I think yeah. we, have, we have been able to preside over the demise of classic Mormon apologetics. And all I can say is good riddance and uh, don't let the door hit you on the way out. All of us, Orthodox Mormons are better without um, classic Mormon apologetics. The church is better without fair Mormon. I can't tell you how many people have left the church. I go around the world and interview people, thousands, tens of thousands of people about what causes them to leave the church. Fair Mormon is in the top five things people list, along with Rough Stone Rolling and uh, CES Letter and, you know, Radio Free Mormon slash Bill Real and, you know, Year of Polygamy. Um, Fair Mormon is is top-notch cause of people leaving the church. And so please, Mormon Church, keep supporting Fair Mormon. Keep supporting uh, the More Good Foundation. Yeah. Shitty because because you're accelerating your own demise, and I'm I shouldn't tell you that, but but I will. Yeah, shitty apologetics uh, drive people out, and I, I gotta say, I mean, old old rigid orthodox Bruce R. McConkie Mormonism it died. Like it was RFM and I talk all the time off the air that this was the thing we had planted our feet in, and it's it's gone. Like yeah. Mormonism is a shell of itself. I don't think Mormonism really cares. It's got enough property and money that. The church is just, uh, you and I were talking off the air, John, it's just the, the way it keeps the tax-exempt status. But the the people in the pews today, uh, especially if you're 20 years old or younger, you're going to be raised with a Mormonism that is so different than the one that any of us three grew up with. Um, you won't even know. You won't even understand uh, the rigidity and orthodoxy that used to be. Um, it's true. Some phone and calls. it's worse. I, I With the Mormon spring, with covid the church is, is in the worst, I, you know, Marlon Jensen said back when I was at Utah state, I, I asked a friend to go to the session and record him saying this, or it wouldn't have ever met the light of day. Marlon Jensen said back in 
that time period that the church was experiencing the worst apostasy it had since Kirtland. I think it's worse now. I think COVID and and the work that you guys are doing and the and that TikTok is doing and on YouTube and all the influencers that are leaving the church. I think the church is by far having its worst free fall of apostasy in its entire history in 2021. It's the Mormon spring and and the church is in free fall. People, people staying home for COVID finally went like, oh my gosh, I don't feel trauma. I don't feel the weight of, of perfectionism. I don't feel the weight of having to do some of this nonsense. And I, I would love to know the numbers of who went home for home church, not going to church for COVID and thought they'd go back to church and ended up never going back. Oh, I think it's tens of thousands of people. Tens yeah. Of thousands. And they had time to study and to think and to rest and kind of do things differently and probably learned a lot of things they didn't know about uh, the church and its history. Several um, people are reaching out to me, by the way, saying that their wards are having these reactivation initiatives where they're, they're love bombing people that are, that, that have left the church since COVID and yeah. it's really pissing people off. I, someone reached out to me today that shared with me a letter that they received from a ward member, basically calling them to repentance for not coming to church. And you know what they did? They resigned. So Mormon Church, if you want to even accelerate your demise further, keep sending out your visiting teachers, your home teachers, your ministers to these people that have stopped attending. Keep annoying them, and you're going to see the resignations accelerate even further. Okay, John, we're going to need a little help right. from you. We've got the uh, the phone lines are open. The All right. 435-200-3478, or it's 435 200 and you got to put your fist up for us, John. Two hundred fist. Uh, we have our there first caller, Dave. You are on the phone here. You're on the line with Mormonism Live, RFM, Bill Real, and John Delin. I don't know if that's a fist or what's going on there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that might be somebody's booty or something. I don't know. But uh, his his image keeps freezing up, so that one's going to be stuck for a second. Dave, you are on the line here. What do you have for John Delin today? Um. This is like the Super Bowl. It's great. Although I can't figure out what's going on with RFM, but. Um, you know, RFM, I, when you move your camera, I, it, it freezes your picture. So try not to move your camera, RFM. And, you know, I'd rather pay you money every month, which I do, than give it to the church. So um, my, my question to you, uh, Dr. Delin, is um, two years ago, I emailed you my daughter had come out as LBGTQ. You suggested that I, um, <clears throat> I had written a letter in support of her. You suggested I send it to the Tribune, Salt Lake Tribune. Um, I've, my fifth commentary was published on Sunday, and now my state president wants to meet with me. Mm. Uh, what advice do you have for me? What can, 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 you, can you hear me? Can you hear me? We're still having issues with the caller being able to hear you guys respond. They can only hear me, but okay, uh, okay. He writes this letter for his LGBT. Yeah, no, I heard him. I heard him. Please. Yeah. Um, well, what I was going to ask him is what his intention was. My my general advice when meeting with church leaders is don't tell them anything, because what you're going to do is give them rope to hang you. They're, um, you know, the church is against free speech. The church is against any criticism. And, you know, it, the, the church doesn't care in 2021 what you think or what you believe. 
the two things the church cares about are, do you give them money and do you stay silent? And I guess the third would be, do you serve in the church to keep it running? So it's, do you serve in the church to keep it running? Do you give them money? And do you stay quiet about anything that would be a problem? You can believe whatever you want, just don't ever talk about it. So anything you say to your stake president or bishop uh, in terms of being open and vulnerable about your faith or your doubts or problems with the church, they're just going to turn around and use it um, in a disciplinary council or to make your life miserable. So I, I generally don't advise being open and honest with bishops and stake presidents because it'll just come back to haunt you. Um, if you want to go out, if you, you know, like Bill Real, if you want to use your um, leaving the church as, as a form of activism, if you want to have some sort of impact in your ward, in your stake, in the community, by um, by agitating for a disciplinary council and then getting excommunicated, then that's an act of conscience um, that you can decide to engage in. But you know, I'm I'm getting tired of these excommunications. They're just so sad. Natasha almost broke in her excommunication. It was it was psychologically traumatizing for her, and I don't think anyone's ever really benefited. I mean. I think Bill and I, Bill, you and I would say we're healthier and happier now, but I don't think we would say it was, well, I, I, I think my excommunication was a horrific, inhumane, barbaric medieval experience. And so I don't wish it on my worst enemy. And so I, 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 even though I think it can be an act of courage, sometimes I wonder how much good comes from it. And by the way, journalists don't care. Peggy Fletcher stack isn't going to cover an excommunication. She yawns at it because because they're so common these days. Nobody cares, which is really saying something. An act as barbaric as an excommunication is ignored by the membership and the general public because it's so common. So anyway, hats off to this gentleman for his editorials, for him speaking up. Um, speak at your own peril, but I commend you for being open and honest. I'm just going to say there's no fun in a disciplinary council. But it, it can, you know, the one benefit of a disciplinary council is it wakes a lot of people up to the church's uh, inhumanity and to the church's problems. And it will probably wake some people up to the church not being what it claims to be. If you want to fall on your sword in that way and be the agitator for at least a few people's uh, enlightenment, it can be a noble thing. But just make sure you don't harm yourself or your family in the process. Okay, we've got caller number two. This is Eric. Eric, you're on the air with Mormonism Live with John DeLynn and uh, RFM and Bill Real. What's on your mind tonight, my friend? Great to be on the air with all three of you. I'm very excited to be, be talking to you. Um, John, I, I know you talk back to me here, so I'll try to make sure my, my question is very clear. Um, I, I'm wondering about your, uh, your recent episodes about B.H. Roberts. Um, those you were on there with... Um, and Caldwell Montez. And um, from, from my perspective, listening to those episodes and then kind of seeing how you reacted to them, those seem to be very emotionally charged episodes for you. If I remember correctly, you got online and, and kind of did some, uh, some off-the-cuff uh, riffing on, on how upset you were about some of the deception and, 
and whatnot. I wanted to ask you why the B.H. Roberts topic um, was so intense for you, if it was indeed as intense as at least it seemed to be. Um, and then just kind of as a follow-up, I, I, I suspect the answer is probably going to be something along the lines of just because it showed you how intentionally, uh, how intentional some of the fraud had been. Um, you know, you, you have been in the, the ex-Mormon progressive Mormon space for you know, a, a more than a decade prior to these episodes. Um, why is it that the B.H. Roberts uh, episodes especially seem to hit that home for you? Thank you. I'll hang up and let them respond. That is a great question. I, I, whoever that was, I want to have lunch with you. I think we would have a really great time. So reach out to me for lunch or dinner sometime. Um, so a couple things. First of all, so before the BH Roberts stuff, I had done the Robert Rittner stuff with you, RFM, if, I, if I'm remembering correctly. And I, 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 it hadn't really occurred to me fully that, that the Book of Abraham stuff was like front page news, New York Times, as early as like 1912, I think. And maybe I read that in the past, but like doing that Robert Rittner episode with URFM, it, that was in my mind. It was like, whoa, the brethren knew the Book of Abraham was problematic in 1912. And then when I was studying like Terrell Givens's lame responses about the Book of Abraham, and he was trying to justify that the brethren printed articles about the book of Abraham. It just crystallized in me that, whoa, they really, they really did know the book of Abraham was problematic a full hundred years ago with, with all the top scholars. But then when I did the BH Roberts episode with Shannon Caldwell Montez, I had known about BH Roberts having some questions about the book of Mormon. I did not know about the secret Mormon meetings of 1922 that he had literally called a meeting with the first presidency, Quorum of the Twelve, and all the 70, and for three or four full days told them all the problems with the historicity of the Book of Mormon. It was Shannon Caldwell Montez that brought that to my attention. And so that, and then the fact that they like sent him on a mission and then tried to erase as much as they could B.H. Roberts from the mission, from the from the history of the church, like Shannon did such a beautiful job of telling that story. And I, I have to tell you, that's one of the most powerful articles I've ever read on in my experience with Mormonism. So just seeing how, how much everyone knew back then and how they all tur intentionally turned a blind eye, that really enraged me. But there's some one other subtle thing that made me furious. As I was preparing for and or studying deeper, I realized that all of this stuff about B.H. Roberts, including the secret Mormon meetings of, of, of 1922, were written about in dialogue in multiple articles and that I had just missed them. And then I thought, holy crap, I'm John DeLynn. I've been doing this stuff for 20 years. I've been doing a podcast for 16 or 17 years. This stuff has been in dialogue for decades and nobody knows. And if I hadn't have interviewed Shannon, no one would be talking about it. And that's when I realized, let me show you a book. See this book right here? This book is Mormonism, Shadow or Reality. 
this book came out in the 70s and then there was a revision in the 80s this book has 95 percent of anything we've ever talked about on any of our podcasts just just gerald and sandra tanner alone have given us all we ever needed to know everything we need to know about the mormon church and still even in the progressive post-mormon space we know so little and so this is why I, I decided to go to YouTube even more intensely and why I've started these small TikTok episodes. We need to get this information out there. And 13-hour podcast episodes are not penetrating the broad Mormon consciousness. It's 2021. And as amazing as Radio Free Mormon is, as Bill Real is, as Lindsay Anson Park is, Year of Polygamy, Mormon Expression, Mormon Stories, Jeremy Runnels, 95% of the active Mormons in the United States have still never heard of any of this stuff, of any of it. And so we have to do a better job of getting the word out. And so it was the B.H. Roberts episode that just showed me how much information we've had for so long and that we still have barely scratched the surface. And so that's that lit a fire under me to go hard on YouTube and to go hard on TikTok to find new ways to reach people. Do you agree, Bill and RFM? Are, are we just barely scratching the surface of Mormon consciousness? Aren't there people coming to you all the time saying it's 2021 and this is the first time I've ever heard of, of RFM or Bill Real or John DeLynn or CS Letter or any of it after 16 years of, of podcasting and YouTubing? There are certainly new people all the time, and I'm getting more interactions in the last year than I did the year before that. Uh, there's to the point COVID kind of messed it up, but now that COVID's kind of perceived at least as kind of going away, uh, we're back to getting a couple people in the store every week or, or families or households in the shop here every week just coming in to see me. Um, I, I, think that, I think there's people waking up to the messiness of Mormonism all the time. Yeah. Well, we've still got a long way to go. And yeah. 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 So Shannon Caldwell Montez was a was a huge influence on that. So perfect. Yeah. Yep. Cool. Um, let's get our let's do this. Let's have a last caller. This is Maxwell. Maxwell, you are our final call for the night. And then we'll uh, we'll end this conversation. And we have three hundred nine three have three hundred and eighteen people watching. Isn't that amazing? Awesome. Yeah. Can you guys hear me? Yep. Go ahead, Maxwell. Awesome. Well, I just want to say, first of all, to John and RFM and Bill that they've done a phenomenal work. I love your passion. I love your passion for what the work that you're doing. And I am a subscriber and a donator. So I love all of you guys. But my, I wanted to bring somebody to the radar to see if maybe Mormonism Live or maybe Mormon Stories would get on top of that at some point. I know you guys are really busy, but uh, David Archuleta has recently come out in some of his Instagram posts that he has had a faith crisis uh, with his belief system and also with his uh, bisexuality. So he came out both on top of that uh, on his Instagram account. And I was wondering if John DeLynn or Mormon Stories Live would be having somewhat of an interview soon. That would be really exciting for the podcast. 
And that's all I really had. I love you guys, and you guys have an excellent night. Appreciate it, my friend. Thank you. Bye-bye. I don't care, John, whether it's you or us or whoever, but certainly I think that uh, David was somebody that a lot of Mormons knew and held up um, and uh, looked up to. And now that his story isn't exactly uh, cohesive with the church's narrative, it'll be interesting to see whether those same Mormons who held him up turn their back on him or what comes of it. And I don't know if he wants to tell his story or not, but I, I think if he does, I, I'm certainly excited to see if any of us get him. Yeah, I thought that was a really big bombshell. Uh, to be honest, m many of us have known for years that he that he identified privately as gay. That wasn't really news to to people who are kind of plugged in. Um, and but but it's always courageous when somebody comes out. And so, uh, the the caller said something that I have not heard. He mentioned a faith crisis for David Archuleta. I I can imagine that there's a possibility of that. When I read David Archuleta's uh, Facebook post or Instagram post, I saw, I did not see signs of a faith crisis. In fact, he mentioned being a believer, being a Christian, being a Latter-day Saint, and needing there to be better listening and understanding of people that wanted to be faithful and LGBTQ. And so um, I, did, I have not heard that he is having a crisis of faith. Uh, so that's news to me, if that's true. Um, I will say I've reached out to him to invite him on Mormon Stories, and I would love to have him, so I agree. My my sense is he's still so much a believer that he may not take me up on that. Um, but, you know, nowadays people only come on Mormon Stories often after they've— they're either like Jim Bennett resilient or they have a free-fall crisis of faith where they hit that really, really angry or— or um, processed phase, and that's when they come on Mormon Stories. Beautiful. Appreciate it. I appreciate your time tonight, John. Any uh, any final thoughts from you, RFM? Yeah, if David Archuleta doesn't want to go on your show, John, could you just have him come on our show? Absolutely. Because, Point people, him our way. Well, because people don't get excommunicated for coming on our show. That you know of. <laughs> that we know of. Yes. I haven't heard of any. All that means is, you, you, uh, you know, all that means is you have an opportunity to to grow and become even more significant. You know you've arrived, RFM, when people are getting excommunicated for coming on your show. That's all I'll say. We like to think of Mormonism Live as a safe space. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, somebody commented saying, you know, that I don't know what a metrosexual is because I guess I was using it incorrectly. I think there's Anna. And, you know, I'm always open to being corrected. And I don't know. Let me just check something out here on the computer let me google this uh metrosexual well that's unusual a picture it's basically of someone that dresses really up. dapper it's a it's a straight male who dresses very dapper yeah you just, I, you just you stepped know. on my line oh, i go sorry. through all that to build up for my punchline and there's john delin stepping all over it here what's, let me try what's the punchline the punchline anyway. i go through all this google stuff right and i google metrosexual and darn it there's not a picture of terrell givens there <laughs> okay, so it wasn't that funny. It was funnier before you stepped on it. I'll guarantee you that. I'm I'm just gonna close out the show, RFM. So, you ready? Hey, I've got a book too. I, no, no, I've got a book too. I know you got to go for ice cream with Joe.
You've got a book too. What is this one? Can yeah, you that's see? a good one. More, same one. Hey, I just want to compliment it's you the same guys. One that, you guys that, are John. Good channel and realities. Hey, team. I have so yep. many people tell me they've stopped listening to Mormon stories because now they only listen to Radio Free Mormon and or Mormonism Live. And the truth is, I'm so thrilled you guys are doing what you're doing. I think there's room for all of us, but I think you guys are smart and witty and interesting. And I just applaud what you guys do. You're heroes to me. Um, and I want to be more like you. I'm trying, I'm trying really hard, but I just love and respect you guys. I consider you dear friends and I'm just thrilled that I hope I wish you guys many, many decades more of uh, podcasting. Cool. We appreciate that. Same to you. And uh, I think all of us mutually uh, respect each other and appreciate all the con- you know, contribution and the creative content that all of us put together. And I think we're all on the same mission, which is to help people have enough information that they can make wise choices. Right. Um, consent, baby. Yeah. To the listeners, uh, if you can donate, go to mormonismlive.org, click the donate button. Please give us a five-star review on Apple uh, podcast or wherever you're listening to this and uh, just hope that each and every one of you beautiful humans uh, enjoy your night rfm great as always i'm glad yes, you're I able to finally get on the show i understand that's your mission bill and your mission john i think my mission is to insult as many people as i possibly can <laughs> and from time to time i think you're doing it john delin <laughs> thanks again for a you're, great night and for your what you do rfm and thank you bill real you're the best okay thank take you, it easy guys time.